Hello and welcome to The Poison Room, a podcast that's something to do with texts being dangerous. This week we are finally leaving the 18th century. In fact, we're leaving it by quite a bit, because today we're looking at some artefacts from the Greco-Roman world known as curse tablets. As the name suggests, these things are tablets, and they contain curses. In Greek, they're called katadesmoi. In Latin, defixiones. Both names draw on the idea that this is a type of binding magic, and words referring to binding are often used on the tablets themselves, which beseech supernatural powers to bind or restrain the target and to confine them to a certain course of action, or inaction. Very rarely do they actually express a desire for the target to be killed. Until a few decades ago, classicists didn't seem to have much interest in things like cursed tablets. John Gager suggests that, quote, One reason for this persistent neglect stems surely from the potentially harmful character of these small metal tablets, not so much from the real harm suffered by their ancient targets, but the potential harm to the entrenched reputation of classical Greece and Rome, not to mention Judaism and Christianity, as bastions of pure philosophy and true religion. End quote. This old trope was used for centuries to support European colonial enterprises. Europeans were enlightened. European culture was better. And they traced this claim to superiority back to ancient Greece and Rome. Magic and superstition has no place in this enlightened classical past. Outside of far-right racist groups, that attitude is dying out, but it takes a while for academia to catch up and actually start producing quality research on previously neglected topics. But we're getting there with research on magic in antiquity, but it's still a bit of a niche topic. Despite past disinterest, cursed tablets were definitely a thing, and currently we have over 1,500 surviving examples of them. The earliest tablets we found date to around the beginning of the 5th century BCE, and we found them all over the place in Roman Britain, North Africa, Egypt, Antioch, and more. The subjects of curses vary across time and place. Curses are directed at commercial, legal, theatrical, athletic, and amatory rivals. The commercial, theatrical, and legal curses are mostly from around the classical and Hellenistic period. The earliest example for a commercial curse so far is from 450 BCE Sicily. Curses targeting athletic performers are usually from the late Roman period, from the 2nd century CE onwards. In Athens, the cursed tablets we found that have targeted athletes, wrestlers and runners, are from the 3rd century CE, whilst the tablets targeting charioteers are from the 2nd century CE to the 3rd century CE, and basically exclusive to North Africa and Syria. Amatory curses that seek to separate people are found across the whole range of time cursed tablets were being made, but those that seek to bring a couple together are a later development. With theatrical and athletic cases, and even legal ones, the tablets are concerned with a public event in which many people have a vested interest in the result, not just the direct competitors. The sports fans want their athlete or team to win. Citizens want political figures they dislike to do badly. So it's not just the athletes or litigants involved in an upcoming confrontation that are making curse tablets. Friends, spectators, political rivals, etc. are all getting in on the action too. Curse tablets to do with commerce or love, on the other hand, are generally personal. It's far more likely that the issue is only of interest to the direct subjects of the scenario. 
In the case of cursed tablets to do with love, there are two different types, those that sought to hamper competitors and those that sought to encourage love in the target. Though, of course, we have at least one exception that combines both from the 5th century CE. Roger Tomlin, discussing a collection of cursed tablets found in Bath in England and dated to around the 2nd to 4th centuries CE, observed a further category unique to England, prayers for justice. Esther Eidenau describes the central features of these prayers for justice. They're written by or on behalf of someone who has been wronged by others and predominantly relate to stolen goods. They tend to go beyond just asking the god for help and offering a justification for the petition, and frequently, quote, dedicate the stolen item to the deity's charge, or deliver the wrongdoer to the gods, or transfer the case itself to the god's care, end quote. Tomlin draws a stark distinction between the two, claiming that prayers for justice are not magical spells at all. He adds that the prayers for justice do not contain many of the elements of cursed tablets, and others have argued that they should be considered a separate category altogether. However, Eidenau also notes that, as is nearly always the case, distinctions that are easy to make in abstract are not so easy to make in reality. There's disagreement over where exactly to draw the line, complicated by the existence of tablets that draw on both spells and prayers for justice. But one notable difference between prayers for justice and other curses is that the prayers for justice seek revenge for something in the past, to redress something deemed unfair, whilst the other curses are preemptive. Commercial, judicial, athletic, theatric and amatory curses all focus on affecting the future actions and behaviours of someone before they can harm the maker. But what do these curse tablets and prayers for justice look like? Well, usually, they're thin sheets of lead inscribed with spells designed to invoke supernatural aid in harming a specific target. Other materials could be used, like papyrus, wax and pottery sherds, among other things, but lead, lead alloys and other metals were the favoured choice. Of course, metal tablets are far more likely to survive than papyrus or wax, so we can't have a true sense of how much more popular lead was compared to these others. The sizes of the tablets can vary, with some being as small as 6 by 4 centimetres and others closer to 24 by 30 centimetres. These sheets of lead were often rolled up on completion of the inscribing of the curse and sometimes pierced with a nail for added binding power. I'll post pictures of some on Twitter so you can see examples for yourselves. Why lead? For several reasons, probably. The method of making a lead tablet is pretty simple. You pour hot lead into a mould, then roll, hammer or scrape it flat and smooth. You can then cut it up into smaller sheets of the right size for your intended nefarious purposes. Lead was generally cheap and easily available, and was also a common medium for writing of any kind. But we also have at least one spell that instructs the user to just nick the lead from a cold water pipe. Finally, lead came to be seen as having the type of quality one frequently wished to inflict upon the target of the curse, excluding the amatory curses hoping to encourage love in someone. We have a tablet from the Athenian Agora that pleads that, just as these names are cold, so may the name of Alkidamos be cold. And there are others that ask the target to become as heavy as the lead. But these kind of details don't appear on the earliest tablets we have, 
So it seems that this was an idea that evolved once lead was already in use as a common material for the cursed tablets. Making the actual tablet is, of course, only part of the process. Next, someone has to actually write on it. But who was doing the writing? We know from Plato that there were already professionals who offered their services in magic and curses in the 3rd century BCE. But based on the huge variation in the quality of the handwriting on the tablets we have, it seems that there were both professional and amateur scribes making them. Though Gager leans towards professionals being the dominant group, at least in the Roman period. Some tablets from that period appear to have been written in advance, leaving a space for the personal names to be inserted, though not always quite enough space. There are some tablets where the scribe has had to cram the name into the space. This is highly suggestive of someone offering a professional service and expecting to do enough business that it's worth having a supply of tablets written out in advance. On the other hand, some of the tablets recovered from Bath are written in what Tomlin calls pseudo-inscriptions where the text seems intended to look like actual writing, but is most likely an illiterate person's attempt to mimic writing. This, coupled with the fact that very few of the Bath tablets appear to have the same handwriting, suggests that a professional might not always be available, which also suggests that, even without a professional available, people were committed enough to the idea of cursed tablets being useful that they still made them anyway. But, as Tomlin also points out, it could mean that illiterate people didn't want to cough up to get a professional to do it, or that perhaps Sulis Minerva, the local goddess, demanded petitioners write their own tablets. Whatever the case, it also suggests that not being able to write was not seen as a barrier to the efficacy of the tablet, and that the goddess would still be able to understand it. Writing on the tablets was itself not a difficult task. A metal stylus, often bronze, was used to make indents in the lead. But when you're dealing with dark and powerful forces, getting the wording exactly right is often considered important, and that's the type of thing that you might want to turn to a specialist for. Often we find tablets that share the same formula for the curse, which suggests that the scribe was working from some recipe they had recorded somewhere. You can think of it as a grimoire, if you don't mind the anachronism. We have some of these formularies recorded in the Papyri Graeci Magicae, or, in English, the Greek Magical Papyri, or, for short, the PGM. As you might expect from the title, the PGM is a collection of papyri from Greco-Roman Egypt, mainly from around the 2nd century BCE to the 5th century CE, containing spells and instructions for constructing spells, as well as hymns and rituals. So we've made the tablet, We've written, or paid someone else to write on it. What does the spell, or curse, look like? What kind of things are they writing? Well, some of that's going to depend on time and place. Earlier tablets from around the 5th to 4th centuries BCE tend to be the simplest, starting with tablets that give literally just the name of the intended victim. Some might include a verb, usually one meaning bind, and the name of a deity. As to the tablets that contain only the name of the intended victim, or victims, which make up the biggest group of Greek catadesmoi we have so far, Christopher Faroni has pointed to the similarities between these and names written on potsherds in connection with expulsion rituals and ostracism in 5th century to 4th century democratic Athens. In fact, our word ostracism comes from the Greek word ostraka, which literally means potsherd but also came to refer to the practice of writing someone's name on a potsherd, 
in order to vote for them to be ostracised. In practice, ostracisms were relatively rare, but a vote was held every year on whether to have one, and if so, eligible participants would write the name of the person they wished to ostracise on a potsherd by way of a vote. It's reasonable to assume that in these simplest tablets, the accompanying curse and names of the deities invoked were spoken out loud. The shift to writing the details of the curse down on the tablet itself is unsurprising. Writing has a permanency that the spoken or signed word lacks. It gives a more concrete and permanent form to the idea. Having a crucifix with you wards off evil more effectively than just making the sign of the cross. These tablets that just list names become less popular over time, and disappear from the record altogether in the 1st century CE. When it comes to the Greek tablets that also include the name of the deity, there's a definite preferential order. According to Gager, Hermes takes the top spot by a big margin, followed up by Hecate, Kore and Persephone. Kore and Persephone are the same, but Kore is the daughter of Demeter version, and Persephone is the queen of the underworld version. After that is Hades, then Ghi, or Gaia, the Earth, and then Demeter. Though, according to Pharaoni, the top of the pops is Hermes, Ghi, then Hecate and Persephone. When it comes to the Latin tablets, the top spot goes to the spirits of deceased ancestors, known as Manes, then Jupiter in second, followed by Pluto, Nemesis, Mercury, and then a bunch of various water nymphs. In later tablets from Roman Egypt, the names of Egyptian deities, most commonly Thoth, Seth, and Osiris, also appear, and there are also names that are clearly from Jewish and Christian sources. Why these gods? Primarily, their deities associated with death or the underworld. Persephone and Hades are an obvious choice. They are, after all, powerful rulers of the underworld. And Hecate is another Chthonic goddess, one associated with magic and crossroads. But why does Hermes take the top spot? The choice of Hermes might not be immediately obvious to you if you're not particularly familiar with classics and ancient Greek myth. Hermes is a god whose remit includes merchants, travel, roads and shepherds, among other things. He's a bit of a trickster figure. And travel doesn't just include journeying around in the human world, it also includes the journey of the dead down to the underworld. In this role, Hermes acts as a psychopomp, guiding the deceased down to Hades. In the Hymn to Demeter, it's Hermes who goes to retrieve Persephone from the underworld and bring her back to her mother. So actually, Hermes is an ideal god if you want to get a message to the deceased or to the underworld. As things start to get more complex, you start to find tablets that also address the dead alongside Chthonic powers. Prime targets are those who died violently and untimely deaths, because, of course, their spirits are restless and angry and hang around unable to enter Hades. Other elements start to appear as time goes by and tablets start to get more complicated. Sometimes the name of the target of the curse would be written with the letters scrambled. Sometimes it would be written backwards. Sometimes the whole thing would be written backwards. These deviations from normal writing are details embedded in the text that are symbolic of the kind of thing you want the curse to accomplish. To stop, to confuse, to tangle up, to reverse progress. They're also the kind of thing that, if you're a professional, make what you're doing seem more complicated, dangerous and mysterious. It adds an aura of mystique. Magic should not appear normal or mundane. The more complicated a spell, the more a layperson will worry about getting it wrong or making a mistake, the more likely they are to pay someone else to do it for them, 
to make sure that it's right and will do what they want it to do. Other textual elements that can be found on cursed tablets are palindromic words and letters arranged in geometrical shapes. The technical term for these shapes formed from letters is carmina figurata. A common form is to start on the first line with a full word and on subsequent lines remove one letter until you end up on the final line with only one letter remaining, or vice versa, or sometimes both. Both of these types of writing emphasise that the text is not normal. It doesn't follow the formatting of texts humans use to write to each other, because it's not intended to act as communication between two living, normal mortals. As David Frankfurter points out, it also suggests that the visual representation of the letters themselves are thought of as having special significance, beyond the sounds they represent. Later Roman tablets contain an increasing amount of voces mystici, or voces magici, words which don't appear to belong to any language and whose meaning is not obvious. But the fact that we can't understand it doesn't mean it wasn't thought to have meaning. Gager explains that, when it comes to addressing spirits and the underworld figures, quote, it would be entirely inappropriate to use one's native, human, ordinary language, end quote. It's probable that the introduction of some of these Vorkes Magicae was due to the influence of Egyptian traditions. We might not be able to understand the words, and indeed the person writing them might not have understood them either, but they did think that this language would be intelligible to the entities they were invoking. Humans use human language, supernatural beings have their own language, and we, being humans, can't understand it. Gager, however, also notes that many of these Voces Mystici have been discovered to be real words from other languages, such as Aramaic, Hebrew, Persian, and various forms of ancient Egyptian. These Voces Mystici might also be combined in a formula, recurring again and again in the same order and shape. In recipes, the instructions for these recurrent formulas in spells is often abbreviated, so instead of the whole formula being written out, you might find an instruction to use the ABC formula. Here's an example of what your cursed tablet might look like so far from the PGM. The weird words are the Vokas Mystici. I adjure you, Erangelos, by Anubis, Hermes, and the remaining powers of the underworld to bring and bind Serapius to whom Helen gave birth, to Heraeus, to whom the Mautherin gave birth. Now, now, quickly, quickly, draw her by her soul and heart to Serapius, to whom Helen gave birth with her own womb. Bring and bind the soul and heart of Serapius, to whom Helen gave birth, to Heraeus, to whom the Mautherin gave birth with her womb. Now, now, Quickly, quickly. This curse is a love curse of attraction, seeking to bind together Serapius and Herias. If you think that those both sound like women's names, that would be because they're both women's names. Yes, this is an amatory binding spell between two women. Women loving women is not a new thing. You can see the petition to various gods, the identification of the targets of the spell, and the Volkes Mystici. Here's another one. I deposit with you this binding spell, gods of the underworld. Pluto and Cori, and Cori Persephone, Erishkagal, and Adonis, who is also... And underworld Hermes Thoth, 
a mighty Anubis, who holds the keys to the gates of Hades, and with you, Chthonic spirits, gods and goddesses, who suffered an untimely death, boys and maidens, year after year, month after month, day after day, night after night, hour after hour, I abjure you, all spirits in this place, to assist the corpse demon. Rouse yourself for me, corpse demon, whoever you are, whether male or female, and go into every place, into every quarter, into every house, and bind Copria, whom her mother, Teresis, bore, the hair of whose head you have, for Alurion, whom his mother named Copria bore, that she may not submit to vaginal or anal intercourse, nor gratify another youth or another man except Alurion only. This one's from the University of Michigan's Papyri collection and is dated around the 3rd to 4th century CE. It's another amatory curse, and it addresses both gods and the spirits of the dead. It's part of a larger text from a papyrus found in Egypt, and casts the central actor as the corpse demon, or Nekidaimon. The prominence of the corpse demon is particularly prevalent in the later spells found in Egypt, which might well be to do with the Egyptian traditions of rituals to do with writing letters to the dead, where the dead person was named and asked to perform a specific action. Having so far pointed out how the words and language of cursed tablets differ from everyday writing, it should also be noted that they do share some of their features with other types of writing. Personifications, the use of metaphor, repetitions, threats and prayers, etc. place them within a class of writing, which also includes general religious prayers, legal styles and even the oral poetry traditions. Curses might borrow the language and phraseology of the courts. Legal language has a sense of authority, of power. Winning or losing a legal case has visible, tangible, real-world consequences. Using that kind of authoritative language makes sense. To a modern audience, the fact that curses draw on magic power sets it apart from these other things. But to an ancient audience, this is simply a variation on the power behind poetry, prayers and legal language, and the boundaries between all those things are blurred. Note that the binding spell from the PGM starts with the invocation of the gods, then petitions for the two women, giving both their names and their mother's names, to be drawn together, now, now, quickly, quickly. Then come the Voces Mystici. Then the petition repeats, word for word, until the now, now, quickly, quickly. There's a lot of duplication going on, which really emphasises the qualities of the text as formal, ritualistic or even legalistic. Just think of the terms and conditions we totally all read every time we sign up to something. How repetitious the language there can sound, or how carefully laws or legal complaints might be structured to make sure there's no doubt at all over who the person specified is or what the targeted action is. The listing of the names of the mothers of the women help to make sure the correct Serapius and Herias are being identified gotta make sure it's the Serapius, daughter of Helen, the spell targets, not just any woman who happens to be called Serapius. Another element that appears in later tablets, from the 2nd century CE onwards, is the use of characteres. These are symbols that appear in a wide range of spells, not just cursed tablets. The power of magic symbols is still a common trope today. Just think of shows like Supernatural, where such symbols are used to summon, bind or banish various paranormal entities. I'm not going to go into depth, here at least, on the power of symbols, 
but it's something most of us have some sort of understanding of. We understand that a single symbol can stand in for a complex ideology, from political parties to hate symbols to brand identification. They're powerful tools, so finding them in magic, where you're trying to invoke powerful beings, is wholly unsurprising. I'll post an example of what these characteres look like on Twitter. Drawings also appear on many cursed tablets, usually representing either the human target or the supernatural entity being named and invoked, and it's not uncommon to find effigies used to support cursed tablets. In the National Library in France, there's a 4th century BCE cursed tablet in the shape of a person, from Charistos in Euboea. It kinda looks like the gingerbread man. Andrew Wilburn notes that it seems that it was first made as a 3D effigy, and then pancaked. It's not hard to imagine that there's a ritualistic significance to doing it that way round, rather than cutting the figure out from a pre-flattened sheet of lead. In the PGM, several of the texts containing formulae for spells instruct the practitioner on what to draw to accompany the texts. I'll post photos of an example on Twitter, and it is well worth a look. It's PGM 36, lines 231 to 55, and shows a delightfully childlike drawing of a figure holding the head of another. Now, ancient drawings can be pretty hard to interpret, but here's part of Wilburn's interpretation of the drawing. Quote, The vignette depicts a rooster-headed curace divinity, the Anguipede, who holds a sword in one hand and a possibly decapitated head in the other. End quote. The Anguipede is a figure commonly found on magic devices, gems, papyri, etc. Frequently it has serpents for legs, but this isn't the case in our Anguipede. We don't actually know who specifically the image of the Anguipede is supposed to represent. Various theories have been suggested, but there's no definitive consensus, though the name Abraxas comes up frequently. Another drawing of the Anguipede appears earlier on the same papyrus, this time holding what appears to be a whip in one hand and a full representation of a tiny human in the other. And in total, the Anguipede, holding various things, appears six times in the spells on this papyrus alone. Okay, so, you've got your nice, smooth lead tablet. You've filled it with words, strange languages, invocations to various gods, symbols, and drawings, all helping to indicate who you want to invoke and what you want to happen to your victim. Whilst you've been doing that, you might have read out part of a spell to accompany it, or you might recite a spell during the next part. And you might have been collecting or making other items to go along with the tablet, such as effigies, little doll-like representations of humans. They were usually made of lead or wax, and nearly all of them have the arms of the figure in a position tied behind its back, literally binding it. They might also be pierced by nails or needles. So by now, you're probably imagining something that's definitely bad and harmful magic, and that the pins are designed to hurt or harm that part of the person. Except, these figures also accompany things such as love spells. So as weird or ominous as they might look, the spell they're attached to is not necessarily a physically harmful curse. Though trying to make someone fall in love with you against their will is undeniably totally immoral and gross. And as for the nails... Usually, they help indicate the parts of the victim's body that the curse is intended to affect, but that's not the same as intended to inflict pain. For instance, 
tongues and hands were frequently targeted in the case of judicial curses, to prevent the victim from successfully presenting their case in court. For athletic competitions, it might be arms and feet. So it's not so much hurt this body part as inhibit this body part, or, in the case of amatory spells, fill this body part with desire. The coolest example of this is a set of effigies from the Keramikos in Athens that dates from around 400 BCE. Four lead figurines, each sealed in its own little lead coffin, with the names of the intended victims inscribed in the inside of the coffins and on three of the figurines themselves. I'll post a photo of these on Twitter, too. What's the next step? You put it somewhere significant, of course. Frequently, that means bury it. Common sites for burying cursed tablets are graveyards and crossroads. Shocking, I know. Magic at crossroads and in graveyards? How very unusual! The tablets themselves also give locations such as rivers and wells, among others. If the tablet is intended to hamper a rival in athletics, then the stadium itself is also an option. If it's a love spell, then you might aim to put it in or near the home of the target, or at a public bath. Graveyards seem to be the most common, which makes sense if your cursed tablet is addressing the spirits of the dead, though, obviously, archaeologists are more likely to excavate a graveyard than a crossroad, and tablets dropped in the sea or a river are going to be pretty hard to find. Now, obviously, cursed tablets fit the theme of this podcast because they're texts, and they're considered dangerous and capable of inflicting harm. But, as Gager points out, the creation of the tablet is only a part of the process. Quote, As the recipes from the PGM clearly demonstrate, the total process could be quite complex. It requires invocations, purifications, fumigations, prayers, instruments, rituals, and more. In short, the client's attempt to prepare a defixio, from the initial decision to its actual commission, must be located in a series of actions, a total flow of events, rather than a single isolated act. It is a serious mistake to focus attention solely on the innocuous piece of corroded lead and not to perceive other actions that accompanied its commission. End quote. The written curse tablet did not function in isolation. It might be the most tangible part of the spell, but that doesn't mean it's the most important. We need to be careful that we don't place undue emphasis on its importance as a single component just because it's the part that has survived in our archaeological records. Not all the elements I've mentioned are present in every curse. In the PGM, there are spells that only mention the creation of the curse tablet, alongside spells that don't require anything written at all, and spells that have complex instructions involving both the creation of the curse tablets, down to details such as what ink and writing implements to use, as well as instructions on where and how to place the tablet once made, and spells that might need to be said at some point in the process. As an example, let's turn back to our old friend, PGM 36. Take a lead lamella and inscribe with a bronze stylus the following names and the figure, and after smearing it with blood from a bat, roll up the lamella in the usual fashion. Cut open a frog and put it into its stomach. After stitching it up with a Nubian thread and a bronze needle, hang it up on a reed from your property by means of hairs from the tip of the tail of a black ox, at the east of the property, near the rising of the sun. I'll post a photo of the things that you're supposed to write and draw on Twitter. 
Note how many different elements there are here, though. It's not enough to just write the required words. You need to use a bronze stylus, smear the tablet with blood from a bat, cut open a frog and put the tablet inside, and sew the frog back up with a Nubian thread and a bronze needle. You need to hang it from a reed using hair from the tip of the tail of a black ox, and you need to put it in the right place. All of these details are equally important. Forgetting the bat blood, or using hairs from something other than the tail of a black ox, or placing it at the west of your property rather than the east, will all interfere with the efficacy of the spell just as much as making a mistake in writing out the words themselves. And of course, acquiring all the items necessary – a bat, a frog, a reed, a hair, a Nubian thread, a bronze stylus and a needle – as well as the tablet – are all part of the process too. So we've covered the basics of the process of creating tablets. Let's pause for a second to consider a question which might not have occurred to a sceptically inclined modern audience. Did they work? The simple answer is yes. People were using these things because they thought they worked, the same way theists today believe in the efficacy of prayer. But what about instances where the tablets clearly failed to work? If you're already committed to a system of belief, especially one as ritualised and complicated as production of a cursed tablet could be, then failures can easily be explained as being caused by incorrect performance of the ritual or it being overpowered by a counter-curse. And confirmation biases would also be at play. If you believe cursed tablets will work, then you will place more weight on evidence that supports that belief than on evidence that contradicts it. That's just standard human behaviour. Sure, some people, like Plato, who speaks scornfully of those who use them, clearly thought they were nonsense. But Plato is a philosopher. We can't use his personal views as indicative of the general consensus or opinion on the matter. Indeed, the very fact that he mocks people who do use this stuff is indicative of the opposite being true. Many people took it seriously. You don't complain about people doing something unless, you know, they're actually doing that thing. Gager makes an interesting point with regard to this question. If we ask it from a starting place of believing ourselves that they don't work, then our answers to this question only focus on explanations of why such practices were thought to work when they clearly don't. But if we accept that practitioners genuinely did believe they worked, then our answers take the form of explaining in what sense they might have been thought to work. Should we perhaps interpret the text in a more metaphorical light? I.e., did people consider the curse effective even if it didn't produce the specific result they sought? There has been a lot of research demonstrating a positive impact of expressive letter writing, from aiding with the management of chronic pain to improving quality of sleep after writing about negative life experiences. And anyone who's ever felt helpless will be familiar with the desire to just want to do something. Curse tablets provide a thing you can do. Of course, this doesn't prove that curse tablets were thought to function because they had a positive impact on the person making or commissioning the curse tablets in terms of them being able to deal with what had happened to them, or might happen to them. Remember, most curse tablets were preemptive after all. And it would be incredibly rash to suggest that this was the line of thinking held at the time, given that there's no evidence to support it. But it certainly shows that we can't rule out the possibility that these effects were part of what helped people believe they did work. On top of that, we know that, 
preparing generally helps performance. And if curse tablets are a common part of preparation for a legal case, for example, then it's easy to see both how the enacting of a preparatory ritual might aid performance, the enacting of a preparatory ritual might aid performance, and if you're performing better than your opponent, that you might be able to attribute their inferior performance to your curse tablet. And if making a curse tablet helps you feel better, or helps you perform better and beat the opponent you cursed, then does it matter if the curse literally came true? Okay, so we know how to create a curse tablet, and we even have some idea as to why they were thought to work. Now, let's look at some other questions. Who was using magic? How common was it? And what were the different attitudes toward it? The profound impact of Christianity on Western culture means that, today, many Westerners, when thinking of magic, think of something socially taboo, possibly even satanic. It is something that is done by only a few people, and done in private, secretly, and not spoken of. Not so in the ancient world. The broad range of uses cursed tablets were employed for indicates that people from all walks of life made use of them. All the evidence we have suggests that cursed tablets, and magic more generally, were a popular thing. Now, I know what your next question is. What can you do to protect yourself against these curses? Well, you could try and take legal recourse, or you could try more curses! Of course, if you're used to the idea of preemptively cursing people to achieve desired outcomes, then the idea of preemptively protecting yourself from other people's curses is going to occur to you. Here's an example of an amulet found in a grave from Amicus in Pontus, Asia Minor. I am the great one who is sitting in heaven, the wandering hollow of the cosmos. The safe name is the true demon, who is the ruler of the kingdoms of the gods. Never let evil appear. Drive away. Drive away the curse from Rufina. And if someone does me an injustice, revert the curse back to him. Nor let poison harm me. King of kings. I am the one ruling the place in Moses' name. The date for this amulet is uncertain, but it's probably from the 1st century CE. Now, when I say amulet, we're not talking about what you might immediately think of with a term. This one is a tablet of silver, rolled up and placed in a small bronze case, and was found in a grave. But amulets could also be worn by the living, tied around necks or arms or legs. They could be embroidered bands or just pieces of string, rings or engraved stones, or rolled up bits of papyrus or metal. Amulets have a broad range of uses, to ward off illnesses, disasters, harm, danger or curses, but also sometimes for the same kind of purpose as amatory curses, or to grant success. What about legal recourse? Is it available to you? Or, if you're wanting to make a cursed tablet yourself, do you need to worry about someone trying to take you to court? There were no specific laws against catadesmoi in the law codes from classical Greece which might lead us to conclude that the societies in question didn't consider it as a concern or something they needed legislating against. But, as Charles Phillips III points out, legislation is often created by a small, elite group of society whose concerns and attitudes cannot be assumed to mirror that of the majority of the society, 
and may be subject to the influence of politics. Part of the problem with figuring out the legal status of cursed tablets is that the laws tend not to mention them specifically. Instead, they tend to use words that, on the one hand, could be used to refer to specific parts of magic, but were also used more broadly to indicate magic as a whole. For example, in 479 BCE, the Ionian Greeks at Teos declared the production and use of pharmaca deleteria illegal. Pharmaca could be used to refer to potions specifically, but here the term seems to mean magic in general, and thus could easily be understood to include curse tablets. Plato lets us know that he thinks there should be laws against binding spells, but he also thinks that they don't work and are just silly superstitious nonsense. So he wants to ban them because he thinks they're a bad influence, and emphatically not because he thinks they work. But that's Plato, and all this tells us is what Plato himself thought. Now, when it comes to later periods and the Romans, we have more evidence of what people thought about cursed tablets. Clearly, they were still in popular use. They're more frequently being used to target athletic performers, charioteers in North Africa and Syria, and even gladiators. Tablets seeking to make the victim fall in love with someone are more common. The first evidence we have for laws against magic in Roman law is from the Twelve Tables, from around the 5th century BCE. Now, the original text of the Twelve Tables has not survived, which means we can only access it through the details given by other, much later writers. And, as we all know, interpretations of laws can change over time. For instance, when Pliny, writing in the 1st century CE, talks about Table 8, which contains three parts that might be considered as aimed at outlawing magic, he interprets the first part as being aimed at those who cast edil spells. But earlier, Cicero, in the first half of the 1st century BCE, interpreted the same law as meaning poetry aimed at ruining someone's reputation. The second two parts are concerned with bewitching crops and magically luring them from others' fields to your own. Now, even Pliny thinks this idea is absurd, but he does think that magic is real, and mentions quite a few incantations that people were using to treat various medical ailments. And when a philosopher called Apuleius was defending himself at trial from accusations of using harmful incantations in around 155 CE, he cites this law about crops as providing the basis for a general law against magic. Apuleius was also charged with using poison and love potions, a charge grounded in the Lex Cornelia de Sicaris et Veneficis from 82 to 81 BCE. The statute was originally issued by the dictator Sulla and was originally intended to deal with terrorism and restore public order. Once again, the statute itself has not survived, but it is discussed by the ever-useful Cicero. Cicero frames it as a law against having anything to do with the process of manufacturing or using fatal poisons. The word used is venenum, and like pharmaca, can have a narrower meaning of poison, or a broader meaning that includes magical means. This ambiguity allowed for lawyers to expand the law to cover spells and rituals. There were also a whole bunch of trials going on in the 1st century CE among political elite, who were vying and scheming for power, as political elites are wont to do. At periods of high political turmoil, such as under the rule of Tiberius, 
accusations of magic were flung about and usually paired with accusations of treason or other things. So among the 1%, magic is being used as a convenient charge that can be used to bolster other accusations against a rival who you want to get rid of. But there's an element of that present in the trial of Apuleius too. You see, he upset some people by marrying Pudentilla, a widow. Doing so was financially bad for members of her family who weren't her new husband. And on top of that, Pudentilla was like 10 years older than him. And that's just weird, right? So you can read part of the motivation being to get rid of someone for financial gain, and part of it as a general attack on someone for breaking accepted social norms. Which is not to say that they didn't also think that Apuleius had legit used magic to both make Pudentilla fall in love with her, and then to kill her son when she tried to tell him she was under a love spell. All in all, it's a complicated picture, and there's a development over time towards interpreting old laws to encompass the outlawing of any sorts of magic, and different uses of the law in different social groups. On top of that, there's also a shift from a focus on punishing the use of magic because of the harm specific instances caused, to an idea that magic itself is intrinsically immoral. There's just a tiny possibility that this had something to do with the rise of Christianity. A document of legal rules compiled around 300 CE is very anti-magic. People doing magic get burned alive. The same kind of laws were issued by Constantine, the first Christian emperor. What can I say? Christianity loves a good witch-burning. The physical evidence for cursed tablets peters out in the 7th century CE and disappears from the 8th century on, and Gager suggests that this was ultimately due to the fact that cursed tablets were simply too pagan to be incorporated into Christianity, as so many other pagan practices and traditions were. That's it for cursed tablets, for now. Undoubtedly, in the future I'll come back to some of the texts mentioned, and maybe focus on some of them, and there will inevitably be a lot more episodes that deal with magic versus Christianity. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using, rate and review the show, especially on iTunes. If you have questions, comments, feedback, want to suggest a topic, etc., you can find the podcast on Twitter, at PoisonRoomPod, or send an email to poisonroompodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, find some lead pipes and steal a flat bit of lead, paint the lead with the blood of a dodo, write down your thoughts on it, making sure you do so with a stylus made of bronze, sew it up inside a dead animal and place it at the end of your property, and hope the neighbours don't get too suspicious about the smell. I won't read it, but it'll be fun. Transcripts of this episode are available at poisonroom.com, where you can also see the references and bibliography. Again, if the sources are publicly available, they're linked to. You have been listening to The Poison Room, a podcast that definitely did not just accidentally summon a corpse demon. The voice of the PGM was Murphy Terrett. The voice of the Michigan Papyrus was Dr. Fiona Mitchell. The voice of the counter-curse was Temple Grey. The voice in your ears has been Lord Osiris of the holy name... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah,